welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you think everyone knows what a balance sheet recession is by now? I don't think so. Only the cool people know what a balance sheet recession. <laughs> only the uh, only the real nerds who are reading up on this stuff pre and post crisis were into that. But I think the, for the vast majority of people, including I would say the vast majority of uh, economists, unfortunately, uh, I don't think that concept is one that's like really in their uh, their language or their terminology typically. Yeah, I kind of have to remind myself of this because I I got into financial journalism right after the 2008 financial crisis and balance sheet recession was sort of the hot thing then. It was the parallel that everyone was reaching for to explain what was happening to the US at the time. But of course, it's still a relatively new concept and it's still a relatively rare type of recession, I guess. Right. And, you know, uh, again, this sort of one of the questions that developed uh, market economies are dealing with right now is why have the traditional tools that governments and central banks use to stimulate the economy not been effective? Why have lower interest rates not caused faster growth and more rapid inflation? Why don't we see uh, more rapid growth and inflation thanks to budget deficits that are essentially near their highest levels of all time in places like the U.S. and elsewhere. And so it kind of in keeping things we've talked about a long time, like, well, what is really wrong with the framework? And is there a different way to think about the uh, the malaise that we see across so much of the world's economies? Right. And I think we are seeing more and more policymakers who are arguing that fiscal stimulus is the way forward or that fiscal is the new monetary policy. And a lot of that thinking stems from the balance sheet recession idea. So why don't we go ahead and dig into it? Uh, I'm really happy to say that our guest on today's episode is Richard Koo, the chief economist of Nomura Research Institute and the man who uh, the term balance sheet recession is actually attributed to. So Richard, Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me here. So why don't we start with with the obvious question, what exactly is a balance sheet recession and how did you come to start thinking about recessions in that way? I have to first disclose my uh, geography because I've been (laughs) in Japan for the last 36 years. Starting around 1990, of course, Japan fell into this what I call balance sheet recession. And BOJ brought rates down to almost zero, tried to stimulate the economy, and nothing seemed to work. And it took me about seven years to figure out that perhaps we have to come out of our ordinary, you know, private sector always maximizing profits kind of framework to understand what's going on. And one day I stumbled upon the chart that indicated the Japanese companies are not borrowing money at all. They're actually paying down debt. And then it came to me that why would a private sector company willing to pay down debt when interest rates are zero? And then, of course, it's the only reason that can happen is that they have a financial problems of some sort, perhaps balance sheets underwater. And then when I start thinking in those terms, uh, everything kind of fell in place. That is to say, during the bubble days, people typically leverage themselves up, thinking that they're going to make lots of money very quickly. When the bubble bursts, asset prices collapse, all that liabilities remain, their balance sheets underwater, and people all start paying down debt at the same time. And paying down debt, it becomes kind of a uh, survival issue for them, because if people outside 
outside the company, for example, finds out that your company is actually in a negative equity, they will stop trading you on credit. Uh, they demand everything to be settled in cash. Your best employee could, could leave because realizing that you know this company might be underwater for many years to come. When all these things come to surface, you're basically dead. So people inside the companies who understand the actual situation, keeps their mouth shut, tell investors, shareholders, whatever they want to hear. They try to repair the balance sheets as quickly and quietly as possible. And that's, of course, on an individual level, the right thing to do. If I were running one of those companies, I'd be doing it. Many of the people listening to this podcast in the same situation will probably do the same because if you have a cash flow, and in the Japanese case, a lot of companies still had cash flow. Japan was running the largest trade surplus in the world. People wanted to buy Japanese products all over the world. So the main line of business was okay. They had a cash flow, but their balance sheets were horribly underwater. So all these people start paying down debt to repair their balance sheets. And that way, you don't have to tell your shareholders. It's, all, it's not the shares are a piece of paper now. You don't have to tell bankers. It's not all non-performing loans. And most importantly, you don't have to tell workers. There are no more jobs tomorrow. So for all the stakeholders involved, using the cash flow to pay down debt is the right thing to do. But when everybody does that at the same time, we fall into this fallacy of composition problems in that even though everybody's doing the right things, collectively you get the wrong result, and you get this wrong result because in a national economy, if someone is saving money or paying down debt, someone else has to be borrowing those money and putting them back into the income stream. If everybody's saving money or paying down debt and no one's borrowing money, the economy will just implode. When all these people start paying down debt, economy began to uh, decelerate and, and the situation got worse and worse and worse. They tried to do monetary stimulus, but if your balance sheet is underwater, you cannot borrow and the banks can't, won't lend you money either. <laughs> so I read your book like uh, many people, I think, in our field did. I probably I came across oh, it you. in <laughs> 2010 or 2011, the book. The Holy Grail of Macroeconomics, where you lay out this theory essentially by looking at exactly what you described, the Japan scenario post-1990, where despite lower and lower interest rates, nothing could change on the corporate behavior because corporates were incentivized to pay down debt. How much, though, is this concept of the balance sheet recession and what you see is sort of like, you know, on the individual level, uh, corporate level makes sense to pay down debt. But in the aggregate level, it's a real it's really problematic. But how much uh, is this different or essentially a new reframing of sort of very old Keynesian ideas about how what might make sense for one household or a company suddenly becomes very problematic uh, when it's the behavior of the overall economy? As you mentioned at the very beginning, is a rare occurrence, uh, this type of recession. Right. Because most of the time, people are very careful with their finances. They're very careful with uh, their balance sheets. But during the bubble days, that discipline disappears. And people just leverage themselves up as much as they can so that they can make tons of money very quickly. And when that bubble bursts, the number of people who are affected will be far larger than in ordinary circumstances. And when they all collectively start paying down debt, even if there were some people who were still borrowing money, on a net basis, 
private sector as a group becomes a net saver. Right. And in that case, we fall into balance sheet recession. So I'm curious, where do you see, given that these are relatively rare types of recessions, where do you see balance sheet recessions now in, in the world? Is it still in Japan, uh, possibly still in the U.S. or in Europe? Where, where would you say and at what stages? Well, uh, I say rare because bubbles are relatively rare occurrences. And so balance sheet recession, which typically follows the bursting of the bubble, is rare uh, because of that reason. Now, Japan, the bubble burst 1990, and it's already 30 years from that. Uh, corporate balance sheets in Japan are in very good shape now. They, the balance sheet uh, recession powers probably ended around uh, five, six years, five to ten years ago. Some companies may still be struggling, but on average, uh, Japanese companies are in pretty good shape. But even after the balance sheets are repaired, this, because of the, this process of deleveraging, process of paying down debt is such a painful process, most companies that comes out are still saying to themselves, oh, that was a terrible experience. We'll never borrow money again. Hmm. So this is a kind of trauma that gets stuck with this, this mindset. And when you look at what happened to Americans after the Great Depression, the Great Depression was this type of recession. Everybody was leveraging up. Once the bubble burst, everybody started paying down debt all at the same time, and GDP collapsed. But people still paying down debt. And those Americans who lived through the Great Depression never borrow money uh, until they died, because the trauma was so bad. Well, Japan, we have a mini version of that. A lot of people are still not borrowing money, because the previous experience was so bad. Now, U.S., I think households sector balance sheets are becoming much cleaner, uh, thanks to all the help from the government and the Federal Reserve. And so I think U.S. is almost to the end of this process, but I think the trauma part will be still with us for maybe some more years. In Europe, because they had a double-dip recession with the European crisis starting around 2011-2012, the problem got a lot worse. and they are beginning to look better, but European economies at the moment are very much dependent on exports. And with the exports weakening all around the world, they are slowing down even faster. And so right. for Europe, it might take much longer. And even after the balance sheets are repaired, this, this trauma period will also going to be lasting for quite some time. So if we go back to Japan and you mentioned that maybe the balance sheet recession in Japan only ended maybe about 10 years ago or less. So essentially it was a 20-year balance sheet recession in your view. During that time and the sort of standard view I think that people would say is, okay, the way to, uh, or at least within your framework, the way to address too much debt overhang in the private sector is for is essentially to move the debt onto the government's books because the government operates differently, and uh, that sort of theoretically relieves the burden. And the government has all the debt, but the government can service the debt because it's the government. Now, Japan did that to some extent because the deficits and the national debt soared sky high during this uh, balance sheet recession. So at the same time, during this long, painful deleveraging crisis, 
uh, the Japanese public debt absolutely soared. But why wasn't that enough? Why wasn't some of the most eye-watering levels we've ever seen of debt to GDP anywhere in the world? In fact, Japan is famous for the size of the stock of its public debt. Why wasn't that enough to more quickly alleviate the private sector's problems? At the beginning, no one had this framework in their minds, right. including myself, I have to admit. <laughs> and so they, when they put on the finan- uh, fiscal stimulus to keep the economy going, they thought with one big uh, jolt, uh, it will act as a pump priming and economy will come out very quickly and then they can rescind the fiscal stimulus afterwards. You know, when uh, U.S. fell into one in 2008, it was uh, Professor Larry Summers who said, oh, we, all we need is a big jolt to get the economy going again, a big jolt of fiscal stimulus. Same argument was made in Japan 18 years earlier. So they put in the fiscal stimulus, and fiscal stimulus, government spending money, of course, economy responds very quickly. But at that time, the balance sheets are still under, under repair. But people didn't realize that part. So as soon as the economy began to show improvement, they decided to cut the deficit because the, mm. you know, we don't want to leave any debt to our children and all that kind of argument. And so even though household, households and companies were still repairing balance sheets, the fiscal stimulus was cut, economy tanked again, and then they put another fiscal stimulus, economy improved again, and they cut the fiscal stimulus again. So we had actually this on and off uh, situation for a very long time, and that is not the way to... To, to fight this, this recession. It has to be sufficient and it has to be consistently applied, sustained. Right. And that was not how it was applied, unfortunately. And in 1997, uh, we made even bigger mistakes of really trying to cut the budget deficit, thinking that economy is already strong enough. And at that time, IMF, OECD, who also didn't understand anything about balance sheet recession, uh, strongly insisted that Japan should reduce its budget deficit. And when that was put in place, uh, we have five consecutive quarters of negative growth, complete breakdown in the banking system. And that became the second, this became the double dip, mm. the real double dip. And once you have a double dip in already this very difficult circumstances, people become very, very pessimistic. And that's why it took us nearly 20 years to, to come out of it. If these were understood from the very beginning and fiscal stimulus were applied in a sufficient amount in a sustained way, I'm sure that time period could have been cut uh, significantly. Talk to us about how fiscal stimulus actually affects private sector borrowing and how you get companies specifically to move out of this debt trauma, because it seems really difficult, at least in the case of Japan. And I, I think even today, you know, Japanese companies don't actually borrow that much. I think we had the first ever Japanese junk bond sale just this year, and something like half of Japanese companies have no outstanding debt at all. So to some degree, it seems like we're still struggling with this debt trauma issue, at least in Japan. Yes. Uh, the way it works is that once everybody starts paying down debt at the same time, there will be no borrowers. But household sector still saving money, 
these, these deleveraged funds also count as a savings, and the economy begins to shrink, right? I, if I may give you a numerical example, suppose I have $1,000 of income and I spend 900 myself. 900 is already someone else's income, so that's not a problem. It's already circulating in the economy. The $100 I decide to save goes through the uh, financial sector and will be lent to someone who can use it. When that person borrows and spends it, the total expenditure will be $900 I spent plus this $100 that this borrower spent uh, combined would be $1,000 against my original income of $1,000 and the economy moves forward. If there are too many borrowers, rates, interest rates are raised, too few borrowers, interest rates are lowered, sometimes with the help, help of the central bank, to make sure that this income uh, cycle is maintained. That's the usual economy. Then when you're in balance sheet recession, what happens is that I have $1,000 of income. I spend 900 myself. 900 is already in the econ- uh, circulating in the economy, so that's not a problem. But the $100 I decide to save gets stuck in the financial sector because there's no borrowers, even at zero or negative interest rates, because everybody's repairing balance sheets. When this $100 gets stuck in the financial sector, not coming out, only $900 is spent in the economy. So economy shrinks 10% from $1,000 to $900. The person who receives that $900, if that person says, okay, let's save 10% and saves $90, spends $810. The $90 gets stuck in the financial sector, again, because repairing balance sheet takes a long time, 5, 10, 20 years. So economy could go from 1,900, 810, 730 very, very quickly, even with zero interest rates. And the last time this actually happened was the Great Depression I mentioned to you earlier, when the United States lost 46% of its nominal GDP in just four years because of this process, 1,900, 810, 730. Now, if the government comes in and borrows the $100 at the beginning, then economy will be kept at $1,000 because I spend the $900, government borrow and spend the $100, so combined it will be $1,000. So the income is maintained. If the income is maintained, people have the income to repair their balance sheets. And that's basically why, and why the government acting as borrower of last resort is so important in these type mm. of recessions. Because by keeping income from falling, people have uh, resources to repair their balance sheets. And after the balance sheets are repaired, then, of course, you have to reverse the situation, private sector borrowing money and government repairing balance sheets. But we haven't got there yet in, in any of these countries, unfortunately. So we recently did a episode with Michael Pettis, and we talked about China and the challenges it's facing right now. With its uh, gigantic or burgeoning private sector uh, debt load, and I've seen a lot of people lately talking about this idea that with uh, there has been this huge uh, private sector debt buildup in China, uh, opportunities are coming to an end, and that there is now the risk of a long drawn out Japan style balance sheet recession in China, uh, simply due to the high level of private sector debt. Do you see a similar situation playing out with what we know about the uh, Chinese economy? Well, uh, there are a lot of economists who like to throw these huge debt numbers and see people going, wow. (laughs) Uh, I'm afraid I'm not one of them. Really? Even though I'm the one who started talking about debt before (laughs) others, and so I'm kind of glad that people are paying more attention to this issue. This big debt numbers that people throw around I am not uh, particularly happy about. And the reason is quite simple, and that is that unless someone is saving money, 
you cannot have a debt, right? Right. Debt cannot come out from nowhere. Someone has to be saving money for someone to be borrowing money. So that's one key point that a lot of people have forgotten. And the second point is that if someone is saving money, someone has to be borrowing money to keep the economy going. This uh, you know, $1,900 issue comes from there. And when you look at some of the debt numbers, you know, they're huge. But when you look at the savings numbers and compare with it, savings numbers, are, of course, those are available from flow funds data. And they are, of course, growing, but growing nowhere near the debt numbers. So how do you describe, uh, how do you explain this, this discrepancy? And I think this, this discrepancy exists because those of us in the financial sector has all sorts of ways to increase these numbers through so-called structured products, for one thing. And more, in a more simplified way, suppose a large state-owned enterprises in China was able to obtain funds from banks at a relatively uh, cheap interest, low interest rates. Then if this state-owned enterprises then supply credit to its suppliers, let's say smaller private sector companies, at a slightly higher interest rates, there will be increase in debt number because SOE borrowed it first right. and it, it lent the money to another private sector companies. So the debt is doubled, but the actual borrower is the last borrower, right? The, the private sector borrower. But the numbers could grow very rapidly as a result. Hmm. The debt number can grow very rapidly. And if you look at Chinese flow funds data carefully, I don't see the kind of craze that happened in Japan or in the United States prior to 2008, where, for example, household sector, which should be saving money, becoming a net borrower. It actually happened in the United States, Spain, and Ireland during the really bad bubble days. That is not happening in China. Household sector is still saving money. And corporate sector, still borrowing money, but nothing uh, especially irregular that you would expect to see in really bubbly situations that happen in Japan and, and other places. So, yes, uh, I think Chinese house uh, real estate prices are high and the bubble could burst. Chinese household sector, corporate sector did not really went as crazy as some of the household sector and, and corporate sector in the West during the, the uh, pre-2008 period. Uh, well, a, a related question, but it, in trying to resolve a balance sheet recession by getting the private sector to lend again, how do you how do you make sure that you don't end up inflating another bubble? Because at least it, in the U.S. and, you know, you can agree or disagree that what happened in 2008-2009 was a balance sheet recession or not, there does seem to be a lot of concern that the corporate sector is borrowing too much and we are on the verge of another sort of um, corporate bond bubble of, of some form or another. So how should policymakers walk that, that line? Well, first of all, I think over-reliance on monetary policy is the shortest way to get another bubble in place. Because during balance sheet recessions, private sector borrowers basically absent themselves. So the fund managers, people in the financial industry, 
basically flood, well, absolutely flooded with, with cash because household sectors continue to save, as they have done in the last 5,000 years. Corporate sector is still, well, and there's deleveraged funds coming back into the uh, financial sector, that basically the debt repayments. And then the central bank, uh, believing that they have to maintain a 2% inflation rate or something, continues to add funds through QE. So during balance sheet recessions, everyone else are short of money except the financial sector. It's flooded with money. And if the government is the only borrower left, a large portion of that funds will move toward the government bonds. And that's the reason why government bonds come down to these ridiculously low levels during balance sheet recessions, even with uh, ever larger public debt. For example, U.S. today, public debt is pretty large compared to what we were used to before, but 10-year uh, treasury is only 1.7%. Japan, even before uh, BOJ went on to this QQE under Governor Kuroda, the um, public debt was already close to 250% of the GDP, but JGB was yielding only 0.7%. That all comes from the fact that this excess funds in the private sector all head toward the only borrower left, meaning the government. But if the government doesn't play its role and absorb all these excess savings, what happens to the remaining funds? The remaining funds will have to go to fixed uh, existing assets, right? Because companies are not borrowing money to, for, for investment. So these funds have to go to some sort of a fixed assets, such as commercial real estate, stocks, and, and, and things like that. And that's where you could have another bubble growing. And U.S. commercial real estate prices, if I see my last number, it was 40, it's 44% higher than the previous peak. And when Janet Yellen and those people talked about the problem in the uh, bubble in the commercial real estate, well, it is actually there. And part of that, I, I think, comes from the fact that there's over-reliance on monetary policy. If we switch from reliance on monetary policy to fiscal policy, fiscal policy means government will be borrowing more money. So the excess savings that have to go to existing assets will be absorbed by the government. And so there will be less chance of having another bubble. So you worry about bubbles right now, or how worried about bubbles are you right now if you look at, say, the U.S. economy? Well, uh, share prices and commercial real estate prices worry some, in my view. Yes, I am somewhat worried. And many companies, U.S. companies, also use this very low interest environment to buy back their shares, right? right? That's why the corporate debt is uh, so much higher. Buying back shares still keeps money in the financial sector. It just changes the, the uh, nature of the liabilities from equity to bonds. But the money is still in the financial sector. And so people who receive that payment will still still want to invest in something. And so that could still end up uh, creating more bubbles while weakening the corporate uh, balance sheet. So you've identified one of the key sort of themes, which is that in all these post-balance uh, post, uh, sheet recession periods, there's this reluctance to lean heavily on uh, fiscal policy and over-reliance on monetary policy. You talked about the fits and starts of fiscal stimulus in Japan after 1990 and how that set back. 
You talk about the bubbles that we've seen here or that may be brewing here in the U.S. because we've relied so much on monetary policy. I'm curious, in your conversations that you've had over the years with policymakers, investors, and so on, what is, what is it that explains this sort of like innate reluctance or distrust to add uh, public debt? And it doesn't seem like it almost doesn't seem to matter what period of the cycle we're in. You could go back to 2009. Even then, Bernanke was talking about the need to eventually take care of the public debt or fiscal consolidation. Why this pervasive view among policymakers everywhere, including those at the IMF and so forth, uh, to be very reluctant about public spending and to be over-reliant on uh, uh, lower interest rates? I think that comes from the fact that all the economics we learn in universities, based on this key premise, that private sector is maximizing profits. But for private sector to be maximizing profits, two conditions will have to be met. One is that they have clean balance sheets, and the other is that they are flooded with interesting investment opportunities. In that world, if government comes in and tries to borrow, you end up crowding out private sector investments, pushes up interest rates, maybe misallocate resources because government is not very good at uh, spending money. It's all negative, very few positives. And that world where household sector is saving money, but corporate sector was very eagerly borrowing money to expand factories and so forth, that world did exist all the way to maybe around 80s in the United States and Japan maybe into the mid-90s. Our textbook economics is based on that period where there's very strong demand for funds from the private sector and household sector saving companies are borrowing. In that world, I fully agree with them that fiscal policy should be discouraged and it should be handled with monetary policy because monetary works, policy works very well when there are lots of people who want, who's out there willing to borrow money. In that case, when the central bank raises rates or lower rates, it will have immediate impact on the economy. But we are not in that world anymore. Households are still saving money, right. but corporates are not borrowing money. And once you enter this different stage, we have to change our mindset completely that we don't have borrowers there. Savers are still there, but the borrowers have, have absented themselves. But this is so hard for economists who are trained in this whole notion that private sector is always maximizing profits to accept. And so they kept on saying, well, if you do one more monetary stimulus, let's say go to helicopter money or negative interest rates or deepen the negative interest rates, something got to happen. That they're still working on this premise that that we are still in the textbook world right. where private sec- there are plenty of private sector borrowers out there. But we are not in that world anymore. But no one has taught them that in this, this d- different world, we have to think differently. Except you. You wrote the book, The, the <laughs> Holy Grail of Macroeconomics, yes. which we, Tracy and I read. Why hasn't everyone else read it? Well, maybe... <laughs> uh, 
I didn't work hard enough. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they're listening to the podcast. Wait, I have one. I have one more question. So I, I mentioned in the intro that the idea that fiscal is the new monetary policy seems to be gaining some ground, and and you just hear policymaker after policymaker talk about the need for fiscal stimulus, but rarely do they actually get into detail about what that fiscal stimulus could be. Does it matter to you in your model what type of fiscal expenditure governments actually use, like hmm. corporate tax cuts, infrastructure spending? Is there a difference to you? Yes, there is. You're right in pointing out that a lot of people are now talking about fiscal stimulus because they argue that monetary policy has its, have reached its limits, zero lower bound, you know, that kind of talk. And what I find it wanting is that they should not talk about fiscal stimulus just because interest rates are zero. They, have, they should really explain to the people why interest rates are zero to begin with, ah. because that's the key. Interest rates are zero because people are not borrowing money. But if in a national economy, someone is saving money, someone has to borrow money to keep the economy going, then what do you do? If the private sector is not borrowing money, the public sector will have to borrow money to keep the economy going. That part of the explanation hasn't come from uh, Mr. Powell or Mr. Draghi or even from uh, Ms. Lagarde, even though they all three are now talking about the importance of fiscal stimulus. And was it September 18th talk? Right. Chairman Powell even said fiscal policy is more powerful than monetary policy. The key reason why fiscal stimulus is needed is not given, in my view, that there are actually lack of private sector borrowers. So I like to see that uh, made clear first. And the second point, your point about the nature of fiscal stimulus, it matters a lot in this instance because if you give them a ta- uh, people who are repairing balance sheets a tax cut, they will use the tax cut to pay down debt. So in that case, uh, GDP will not be affected. So in this type of uh, situations, I'm afraid one has to use uh, public works, government actually spending and creating demand to make sure that uh, income level is maintained. And only by keep maintaining the income level, people have resources to pay down debt and repair their balance sheets. And so during this type of recessions, government has to be the borrower of last resort and the spender of last resort. Now, this thing takes a long time to repair. The balance sheet repair takes you know, many years. Japan took nearly 20 years, although it didn't have to be 20. Uh, once we know that in advance, then we should really put together, for example, an independent commission, put our bright, best and brightest people in it, and let them try to find out uh, those public works projects that earns the very low rate of return that we see on government bonds today. For example, if it's uh, 10-year treasuries are yielding 1.7% or so today, if we can find a public works project that earns the social rate of return above 1.7%, by all means, we should do it because those projects will be self-financing. It will not be a burden on our future taxpayers. And that's the way we should be thinking. And unfortunately, in Japan back uh, 20 years ago, or after 2008, people needed fiscal stimulus right away because otherwise it would be in the 1,900, 810, 730 uh, cycle. So they, they had to do all sorts of things very quickly. 
some of them were not very well uh, thought out. And that's why you end up right. with bridges to nowhere, roads to nowhere. If we knew in advance that these things can take a long time, uh, of course, some stopgap measures are necessary, but they, we should have set up some sort of an independent commission to make sure that we pick good projects that are self-financing at these ridiculously low government bond yields. Then everything will be sustainable. Well, Richard, I really don't understand the excuse that people have because I thought your writing has always been very clear. Uh, but nonetheless, I hope uh, people listen to this podcast and continue to read your work because it makes a lot of sense to me. And as you point out, these issues aren't going away. Uh, large private sector uh, debt loads still exist in the U.S. Uh, there's uh, uh, bubbles in the U.S. There's a uh, unwillingness to borrow that we're obviously seeing in Europe, and that's going to scar the uh, region for a long time because of the double dip nature, as you said. So hopefully we, uh, we've we done some good here, but uh, really appreciate you coming on. I've uh, always been a uh, big fan of your work. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Richard. That was great. So, Joe, I don't have to ask you. I, I can tell that you enjoyed that conversation. I love Richard. Like I said, I read his book in 2010 or 2011. I was like, ah, oh, this like makes sense. And he called it the holy grail of mac macroeconomics. And that might seem, you know, all he was saying is that Japan has a lot of lessons for the rest of the world. That's what he's saying. You look at Japan and you could see what how the economy works in a way that elsewhere uh, could be applied. But there hasn't been much application of it since then. Yeah. And one thing I really like about his whole theory is the behavioral aspect yeah. of it all, the idea of this debt trauma, because you don't often see that in traditional economics textbooks. People don't talk about what past experience actually means to the way economics is supposed yeah. to work. And of course, if people have a bad experience, then they might not act rationally in the future. So they might not borrow money, even if interest rates are really low or below zero even. Totally. I, I think uh, there's a lot of economists have this sort of like overly mechanical view of how the economy is supposed to work and how firms uh, maximize profits or households maximize incomes. And if you have X opportunity to invest and your cost of capital is below X, then you're just going to do it. But that, of course, uh, ignores, as you say, and as Richard pointed out, how one's historical experience uh, may inform in a very significant degree, to a significant degree, how you behave. Yeah, exactly. Well, one other thing that really struck me is it's kind of interesting to me how uh, Ku has this sort of middle ground, I think, between sort of mainstream macro on one end and MMT on the other end. Because in the MMT framework, it's almost you should always rely on fiscal policymakers and that there's uh, deficits are never really a problem extent, except to the extent that they uh, cause inflation due to uh, an economy at uh, maximum potential, where it's clear that he is does not quite buy this view. So he like more sees this sort of sectoral balances view in a way that I think mainstream hasn't come around to. But he still thinks that in normal times, the basic idea that the central bank should do demand management and the government, uh, it's dangerous to run up debts 
is something he uh, agrees. He just doesn't think these are normal times for developed uh, economies. Right. Well, he argues that eventually governments should concentrate on fixing their own balance sheets, but only after they've sort of substituted yeah. the private sector and, and stepped in and done a bunch of stuff. And in, in a way that I think would probably happen decades after the fact anyway. Um, but it is very different to MMT in, in that respect. You're right. It is a nice middle ground. Hmm. Radical but middle. <laughs> okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And check out all the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter at the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. 